0: and welcome to Public Domain Playhouse's rendition of The Call of the Wild. And actually, this is a wrap-up of all seven chapters, because we finished the last chapter last time in dramatic fashion. Buck the Dog in Chapter 7, The Sounding of the Call. I'd like to take just a little bit of time to summarize what happened in the book. This was a long production, and it would probably take several hours to put into one giant podcast or one giant ebook. And that's one of the things that I kind of wanted to talk about. Mine is a cross between a podcast and an ebook. It's a podcast in the sense that I have a strong desire to discuss literary devices and the literature of the day without it just being a straight book, a straight read. But I do really enjoy reading. It's one of the reasons why I began Public Domain Playhouse. Um, probably started off by reading kids books to my children and doing all the voices and I wanted to, to continue. Um, ultimately, what I would love to be able to do is to narrate ebooks as well as do podcasts, as well as do game voiceovers, and so on. <laughs> Give me a moment to kind of rehash what we learned in The Call of the Wild by Jack London. In Chapter 7, The Sounding of the Call, John Thornton pays off his debts with the money that he earned in the bet from the previous chapter and he sets off to the east to find a fabled lost mine that's supposed to make any man massively rich. Together with his dogs, Thornton and his friends Pete and Hans and Buck wander in the wilderness, hunting and fishing and living off the land, until they reach a shallow place in a valley full of gold. The men earn thousands of dollars a day panning for gold, and the dogs have nothing to do. So in this time, Buck begins to feel wild yearnings. One night, he springs up from sleep with a start and hearing a call from the forest. He dashes through the woods and finds a timber wolf, a third of his size. Buck begins to circle the wolf and eventually they make friendly advances, even though the wolf is afraid. Finally, the two animals show their friendship by sniffing noses, as dogs will do. And the wolf leads Buck eventually away through the forest. They stop to drink and Buck remembers John Thornton. And the wolf encourages him to keep following, but Buck actually turns around and starts back towards the camp. When he arrives, Thornton is eating dinner and Buck showers him with affection. For two days, he never allows Thornton out of his sight and then he hears the call more loudly than ever before and is haunted by the recollections of his wild friend. So Buck begins to stay away from camp for days at a time hunting his own food. So in chapter seven we see that Buck actually has two identities at this point. One is a sled dog in Thornton's camp and another is a wild hunter in the forest. He kills a bear and fishes for salmon in the river. And when a moose comes in the fall, when a herd of moose come in the fall, Buck hunts them eagerly. He cuts a bull away from the pack to kill him and finally brings him down after four days of stalking the animal. Then he heads back to the camp. But on the way, he feels a strange stirring in the wilderness of something new abroad. And he feels a premonition of calamity. Buck's feeling is proven correct when he finds Thornton's dog Nig and one of the dogs Bot and Dawson both dying on the trail. As he approaches the camp, he sees Hans laying face down, arrows covering him like a porcupine. He peers out to where the lodge had been and sees yee Indians dancing in the wreckage. Buck charges, cutting their throats open with his fangs and killing several of them. The remaining indians scatter and buck finds the rest of his camp including thornton dead buck mourns his master but feels pride at having killed the yeehads henceforth he will not fear men anymore unless they carry weapons and he hears the call of his wolf friends again his ties to thornton which are broken by his death um, means that he can head out to follow the sound of the wild, the call of the wild. He finds the pack, and one wolf lunges for his throat, but Buck easily breaks his neck. Three others try, but pull back, and after half an hour, they all draw back, but one of them approaches Buck in a friendly manner. Buck recognizes him to be the wolf he encountered in the woods earlier and ran side by side with. So Buck joins the wolf pack, and the Yeehats notice a difference in the local breed of timber wolves as the years pass. They also tell tales of a ghost dog that runs at the front of the pack, singing songs and leaping above his fellows. They tell of a haunted valley, where Thornton lies dead where an evil spirit dwells and where every year, Buck comes and mourns for a time beside the stream before loping away to rejoin the pack. Early in this final chapter, Buck's vision of primitive man recurs and this time he sees himself running alongside the hairy man, as London writes. He hunts with him in the forest and he guards him while he sleeps. In these images, London once again emphasizes the primitive nature of the man-dog relationship and the strength of the bond that ties Buck to John Thornton. But the bond is constantly tested by the equally strong call that draws Buck away from human life and deeper into the wilderness. A call that fills Buck with, quote, a great unrest and strange desires. As Thornton and his friends sift for gold in the wild, Buck's soul is in a state of extreme tension. He's torn between his loyalty to his master and his destiny as a wild animal. Buck's encounter with the timber wolf, whose smallness reminds us of Buck's remarkable size and power, is an important step in his development as a wild creature, since it offers him a promise of a community of wild creatures. Buck need not be alone in the wild. He can find companionship not only from humans and dogs, but also in the tight-knit world of the pack. Meanwhile, Buck's long hunt of the moose enables London to emphasize the importance of what he termed blood longing in Buck. Once again, the novel emphasizes "killer be killed nature of life in the wild and shows us how Buck, the dominant primordial beast, is the ultimate killer. He was a killer, the novel insists, a thing that preyed living on the things that lived, unaided alone by virtue of his own strength and prowess, surviving triumphantly in a hostile environment where only the strong survive. These sentiments are the language of Darwin and Nietzsche, portraying life as an unceasing struggle for survival in which only the strong survive, only the bucks of the world can last for long. Still, it takes Thornton's death to actually enable Buck to enter this wild world fully. And for the first time in the novel, he has no master. He has been passed from Judge Miller in the beginning, to the Dog Traders, to Francois and Hal, and finally to Thornton. But Thornton's death ends in the succession of masters and leaves him the master of his own fate. The only humans that remain in his world are the Yeehat Indians, and Buck scatters them triumphantly demonstrating that he is the master, not they. His attack on them marks the final step in his escape from the world of men. Earlier, he learns that humans can be violent, like the men who beat him with a club, and foolish, like Hal, Charles, and Mercedes. After all that has happened in the North, he learns he can kill men at will and quite easily. The last traces of the old civilized morality vanish, and Judge Miller's Buck, who would die for a principle, is transformed into a beast who kills with impunity and without remorse. London treats this transformation in Buck not as a tragedy. Morality functions well in the civilized world, the novel suggests, but Buck's authentic animal nature is amoral. It obeys the law of the wild. In which brute strength is the only arbiter of justice this strength of bucks wins the respect of the wolves the wild wolves who first fight buck and then obey him and his strength makes him a legend among the yeehats when the novel opens buck is a king but a soft monarch ruling a gentle land obtained only by his birthright As the novel closes, however, he's king again, but this time in a kingdom very different from Judge Miller's warm Santa Clara Valley house. More importantly, Buck has won his kingdom by his own efforts and nothing else. He is a self-made monarch, having faced a cruel, uncaring world and mastering it. Thank you very much for joining me for this long series of podcasts. I sincerely do appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed it. Jack London's The Call of the Wild remains with us to this day. The term The Call of the Wild still in our lexicon, reminding us that we're a stone's throw away from our primal selves. Civilization is really kind of a veneer that we all live in and become accustomed to, but it doesn't take much to bring us to our primal selves. What does Call of the Wild mean in today's day and age? Now that I've had a chance to read the entire story to you and have a chance to kind of do recaps of every single edition that I've put out, it's important to keep in mind that these works are disappearing and yet they affect us in a day-to-day way. What was happening to Jack London and the Klondike back in the Late 1800s, early 1900s was truly remarkable and kind of a microcosm of what was happening in general. It was the start of the Industrial Revolution. Men were getting rich. You know, there were steel magnates and oil magnates, and, you know, that uh, fever was in the air, definitely. So when there was gold that turned out in the Klondike in the late 1890s, people went there in droves and that's where our story takes place and it actually takes a dog from sunny california and juxtaposes him and puts him into uh, an environment where he's taken up north via seattle eventually up into canada and further up north into the yukon closer to alaska and that's where the gold is being found but originally buck goes from one owner to another. That's also kind of another interesting thing about this. Um, He goes with Francois and Perrault, who were basically delivering the mail onto a Scottish half-breed, and his uh, team of drivers, who only keep them for a short period of time, and so on. And Buck eventually finds John Thornton through happenstance, and uh, ends up falling in love with him. The whole title of uh, one of the last chapters is For the Love of a Man. And of course, when he loses Thornton, Buck is free from the world of mankind altogether. He can leave the last vestiges of love behind forever, although he'll experience that forever and it will affect him. And still, the call of the wild is what pulls him away. So London um, can be criticized in a number of ways. He, He does seem to be somewhat of a misogynist. The only two female characters in the book both die. Um, not to say that there are plenty of men who die as well, but he doesn't seem to speak real highly of women um, as a dog or as a human being. They basically just kind of complicated the situation although Billy was good-natured. It was uh, it's an interesting story and keep in mind that it is dated and we can't hold London by the same rules that we're living by today. I'm a firm believer in that. I mean you live in the times that you live in. While certain important things happen throughout history, we can't go back and change them no matter how hard we want to. We can try and learn from mistakes and move on from them. So I think it's kind of interesting to talk about Call of the Wild. I'd be interested to get some feedback from you all and find out whether or not you actually like this live action feel kind of ebook. So Call of the Wild, we all know what that means. I think it's really interesting to talk about these kind of things and think about where it takes us in the future. One of the premises of the book is that it's not hard at all to take a civilized creature and turn them into something wild. And something not only wild but something that can rule the wild as we see. Buck was a half St. Bernard half Scottish setter I believe and uh, with that combination apparently was a much larger dog than most wolves would ever be. I always thought wolves were huge. But uh, I'm gonna take London at his word considering he did go to the Klondike himself. His life kind of parallels in a lot of ways. The life of Buck. He started off in California. Of course, Buck didn't have to come back because he got shingles. I think that's exactly why London had to come back. His health started failing when he was living up north. He wasn't getting the proper nutrition, so he had to come back. I think he ended up selling Call of the Wild and White Fang kind of as cereals, if I'm not mistaken. There are plenty of film adaptations of this movie including the latest one by Disney with Harrison Ford and a CGI dog and it's gotten good Rotten Tomatoes scores it's gotten good comments all the way around I'm sure you know Disney produces great stuff but I find it particularly ironic as an English person to think of a story about savagery and brute primal force the law of club and fang basically kill or be killed to be turned into a Disney kind of epic and I'm sure in a lot of ways Harrison Ford makes a wonderful John Thornton but I mean John Thornton doesn't even come in until the last two chapters of this particular novel and it is who Buck falls in love with, but I'm sure I haven't seen the Disney version, so I can't actually give it really much criticism. But I do know from what I've heard that it has been gentrified quite a bit, and a lot of the things are going to be coming out, like apparently the man in the red sweater who beats Buck into submission in the book and beats him over and over and over again. It kind of made me sick to actually be finding sound effects of, of a dog getting beaten. There are plenty of film adaptations of Call of the Wild. There's not much to like with a CGI dog. I know I sound like an old man, but that's actually one of the reasons why I want to talk about these things of antiquity. These things that are timeless elements. If you're listening to me in the future, just know that there are things that connect us all together in the human experience. It's a long chain that, um, from one generation to the next that binds us together. So what London went through was very attributable to what we would go through if we were thrown up north, on dog sleds with, you know, no electricity, no internet, no phones of any kind, you know, you're just having to rough it. And as we're shown in the characters of Hal and his brother, and Mercedes, the woman at the end, who perish because of their ignorance, London makes the point that it's not for everybody. Not everybody is going to survive. Buck masters his way to the top and becomes the alpha dog of a wolf pack in this particular story. I know we were talking about critique of london Uh, the only natives that he mentions in this are the uh, fictitious tribe the yehat indians but it seems pretty clear that london was of a certain mind in the early 1900s that saw different ethnicities as something basically to be commented on but it's interesting to think about these stories you know, it's funny to think that when things get disney they get softened way down. And I'll bet you the uh, the message is even kind of lost that, you know, you turn wild when you've got no other option, basically. And it's in our natural instincts to turn wild anyway, so it doesn't take us much to get extremely savage in the book. Where London came from, actually having been one of the guys that rode on dog sled trails up in the Yukon, he understood what it meant to kill or be killed. I mean, every single day was a risk in the Yukon, I'd imagine. Heck, from being taken out by a moose, to uh, being taken out by a bear, to being, you know, accidentally shot and killed, to coming down with some kind of tetanus or dysentery and being so far away from any kind of civilization that you couldn't get any help life has been a struggle and here in the 21st century in particular sometimes it seems like we forget that it doesn't take much to get us back to a more primitive state i guess would be a good way to say it not that there's anything wrong with that and that's kind of what it shows buck may have turned into the most ferocious killer that was out there but he ended up siring a whole line of dogs that basically kind of changed the face of canines up in the yukon that would kind of be the premise of the yukon or of buck's travels up there and he was called a ghost dog and the yeehats hated him because he was uh, so good at killing them even if they had club and spear buck was smart too he wouldn't get around anyone that had a club or spear at a certain point. He learned his lesson very well early on in the book with the man in the red sweater. And speaking of moose, I was on a moose there a minute ago. That was a great scene where Buck kind of is taking his last steps in the civilized world by spending four days bringing down a bull, moose, um, the elder moose of the tribe and the leader of the tribe, the alpha of the tribe, And it was a huge conquest and Buck ends up taking him down, a dog taking down a 1,200 pound moose. That would be quite a feat. But London is going to great steps, literary wise, to make Buck a prototype, the alpha dog of alpha dogs. Okay, he's like the strongest possible dog ever for this particular category. He's smart, he's strong, he's cunning. Fearsome, and ferocious, and brave—quite frankly—and he's big. Big always helps as well. I mean, Call of the Wild um, is about things that actually bind us all together, as well as set us apart. Buck is the alpha prototype male. He's vicious and savage, and every dog, but an unstoppable every dog. He is an interesting study, and the people that own him are an interesting study as well. We see that Buck goes through basically just about every kind of owner that there is. Officious types that are, you know, only delivering mail, or other types who are just moving cargo from one port to another, or stupid people who are up in the Klondike and should not be and have no idea what they're doing and end up causing their own demise, or just people that you happen to stumble across that end up being the most influential people in your life such as with Buck and John Thornton. And that's kind of interesting to think about too, and I'm sure that's what Disney played upon, was the love between a man and his dog. I think Thornton had an innate understanding that Buck was a supremely beautiful dog. I mean, he saved Buck from being beaten to death, basically. But he also intrinsically loved him. And the only other dogs, other two dogs that are around are these small little kind of yappy dogs that befriend Buck. And I think that's kind of funny, too. That kind of shows that, once again, despite our differences, we can all come together for a common cause. And Buck loved those dogs because John Thornton loved those dogs even though he loved Buck most of all because you know why? Buck was independent. Buck was cool. Buck was tough. Buck didn't need to nudge under somebody's hand all the time to get adoration. Buck knew he was the shiz. (laughs) Excuse my literary slur there. So thank you for joining me for the wrap-up of Call of the Wild by Jack London. If anybody else has a London story that they want me to read next, please let me know in one way or another. You can go through the Anchor app and actually leave voicemails, I believe. You can send me an email at at google.com. I am kind of interested in wrapping this up and discussing why Call of the Wild is still part of our lexicon today. And it's because... The more human beings change, the more we stay the same. This has been fundamentally true for millennia. We might be wearing different clothes, and we might be in different circumstances, and have different levels of understanding, but it doesn't take much to get us back to our primal roots, doing what we need to do to survive, to kill or be killed. Some critters are lucky that don't necessarily have to face those kind of odds on a regular basis, but when you're big like Buck people are always going to be going for you so this was a really interesting story by today's standards being called by the wild would be once again laying into our primitive roots if things were to go crazy say uh, all electricity got knocked off we're all living by candlelight again It wouldn't take much to get us back to a very primordial level So seeing how I am particularly interested in how these stories of antiquity actually stay with us for over a 100 years and remain in our lexicon today, I'd like to take a look at the new Harrison Ford movie produced by Disney, The Call of the Wild. Let me take a look at this article on Slate.com. How the new Call of the Wild movie the Jack London's novel, Disney's family-friendly version, has little in common with the violent philosophical book that inspired it. So, that is basically what I was thinking had basically happened. The Disneyfication of Call of the Wild means that uh, you won't see the savagery of dogs being killed, or dogs killing one another, or dogs, you know, killing rabbits, or fighting each other to the death. You won't see savagery that brings people to an ultimate primordial state. You're going to see a CGI dog going through lots of things. You'll probably see the scene where he bets him that he can break the frozen runners of the sled out of the ice up in Skagway. Um, That's a great scene where Buck triumphs and pulls a thousand pounds of flour a hundred feet or something like that or a hundred yards. You'll probably see the scene with the Yeehat Indians, but I'm sure you won't see any throat slashing and bloodletting and, you know, Buck savagely killing men and being proud of killing men later on because they died so easily. You probably won't see the Yeehats kill John Thornton and his whole party. You know, I'm sure those kind of encounters happened all the time. That's one of the reasons why people wrote about them. Indians and Whites probably did fight all the time, over turf, basically. So I'm not going to poo-poo what London did in his story or say that uh, he was unfair to one ethnicity or another. Um, I do think that he shows kind of a certain Caucasian bravado, I guess we'll say, over some of the things that he has. You know, that was part of the nature of the day, as a matter of fact, it might have even been editorially important to be able to sell that story to Saturday Evening Post or whoever. They might have wanted a certain amount of white Caucasian America themes to it. Because in a way, that's kind of what the story suggests, that a dog from a mixed breed dog, American dog, could go up north and kick ass and take names and become leader of the pack. The Call of the Wild was a novella that was done in 1903, according to this article, and it was first published in four installments in the Saturday Evening Post. It was different from many other sentimental animal stories that were popular at the time, this article says. Buck did not read the newspapers or he would have known trouble was brewing. The book begins and takes off like a shot into the milieu of the Alaskan gold rush where dogs and men test themselves against hardship with varying degrees of success. This is a well-written article. And they're basically right. This article on Slate.com actually has a lot of really salient points. Um, They talk about the body count being so high in the book, which it really is. I mean, extremely savage. In several instances, they point out dogs are mercy killed when they're sickened or they fall on the trail. And Buck's team is actually sold to a trio of Southlanders who are utterly incompetent backwoodsmen. The consequence is that the entire team save Buck dies at once, crashing through the melting ice that can't support the weight. And that is actually a sad thing that happens to see a whole team of dogs, many of whom, um, like Saul X and Dave and some of the others, that have been with Buck for almost the entire trip, go crashing through the ice. So it's horrifying when that actually does happen. There's a lot of savagery that does happen in this novel. But in London's scheme of things, they point out in this article, that's the law of club and fang, and actually London points that out. It's London who points out the law of club and fang means savagery happens, and he who survives can be king. So, But it's important for Buck to come to terms with those things, with that kind of relationship of the law of club and fang, in order to be able to survive at all. And the article points out that, in true Disney fashion, almost all that savagery is cleaned up. The man in the red sweater only hits him once, <laughs> um, versus what actually happened in the original one. I mean, Buck had blood coming out of his eyes, ears, and nose, and mouth. The man beat him so, um That's what it took to break Buck's will, and that's actually an important part of who Buck was. He was a big, strong dog. He could take a lot. It also says that the fight between Buck and Spitz ends with Buck holding Spitz down and then Spitz walking away into the woods. Interesting. Um, That's a horrible adaptation to what really happened. It's a very Disney way of going about things, but this is their new animation, I guess. That's not what happened in this book at all. Spitz got torn to pieces. The dogs apparently in the movie that were on the trip with the Southlanders end up also escaping into the forest, apparently, rather than dying in the river. It says without the interrogation of the nature of brutality, the Disney version of Call of the Wild is much more other Disney stories as opposed to what London was doing. He wasn't trying to be sentimental or moralistic. Parole and Francois. Buck's first owners in the North are Perrault and Francois. They're a couple of uh, rough but fair men who deliver mail for the Canadian government. Perrault is a French-Canadian and swarthy. And Francois is a French-Canadian half-breed and twice as swarthy. They speak broken English. London describes Perrault as a little weazened man and Francois as a black-faced giant. Perrault's first exclamation upon laying eyes on Buck is, "Sacre DAMN, THAT ONE DAMN BULLY dog, Eh? HOW MUCH? Buck feels no affection for either of these men, but he grew honestly to respect both of them because they knew how to break camp, they knew how to uh, treat dogs, they knew how to behave with dogs in the wild. In the movie Perrault and Francois, now Francoise, are played by Omar Sy, a French actor whose parents are from West Africa, this article says. And he's 42, and he doesn't look weasened at all, apparently. Kara Gee is a Canadian actress who's Ojibwe. Size Parole loves the dog to a fault, apparently, and he gives uh, several sentimental speeches about the importance of mail delivery in the Klondike. <laughs> the movie might be worth the price of admission just to hear <laughs> love of the mail, because. We're all never. Didn't speak much at all. Guise Francois is a prickly and standoffish but eventually comes over to Buck's side after he rescues her from a fall through the ice. Yeah, that's disney Find. If there are added difficulties that come from being two people of color, and in Francois's case, a woman of color, working in the Klondike during the gold rush, we never see them. John Thornton i like what this article has to say uh they go on to say that uh, ford's character heroic appears several times throughout the movie rather than just at the end he encounters buck when the dog is loaded off the boat apparently uh, bringing him to alaska and again when he's purchased by the foolish cruel hal dan stevens and finally when he saves buck from hal's clutches ford's character also narrates the story apparently interesting this is a departure from the book, which confines Thornton's presence to a stretch of the tale when Buck and booked are together. Yeah, it happens in the last couple of chapters. And Buck comes to fall in love with him right away, perhaps because he saved his life and fought for him. But perhaps because Buck recognized another good soul. That's kind of what London is suggesting, that Thornton is... Kind of a prototype nice person, but hard-working man goes out into the Klondike to find his own gold and fight ye had Indians and all kinds of fun stuff like that. According to this, Thornton's character gets a much more cheesy backstory from him drinking too much, recovering from the death of a son. And the movie follows a classic Hollywood man rescues dog, dog rescues man narrative. It's not what happens at all. At one point, Buck even physically removes a bottle from Thornton's hand and buries it in the snow. How cheesy. Oof. One of the things the movie Thornton learns at this time, Buck is that he no longer cares about gold. He finds fruitful claim with Buck and the journey Then he then dumps all the gold that they've panned back into the river, declaring enough gold for groceries for life. That's all a man needs. Jack London, according to this article, is a socialist who might actually agree with that sentiment. John Thornton in the book was never such an idealist. He was quite happy to find the gold that he did and actually died trying to find more. Yeah, the article goes on to talk about race and representation, which I've talked a little bit about here as well. They say London, intimately familiar with pseudo-scientific ideas around the human hierarchy and the eugenics of the time from reading popular books about these concepts that educated people considered au courant. But he was a socialist, apparently, and his published writing usually came down on the side of the oppressed. I'll look forward to more of his oppressed literature. <laughs> London was capable of uttering abhorrent crudities in support of white superiority. I kind of noted on that, too. He kind of has a white super feeling, it feels. This article goes on to make an interesting point about the Yehad Indians and how the coming of white settlers in the Yukon actually spelled disaster for the Native American or Native Canadian tribes, the natives. And he kind of points this out by bringing out the seam or the pack of wild dogs from, quote, some Indian village, end quote, which were, quote, half starved, attacked the camp where Perot and Francois are resting at the night and making off with all the grub. <laughs> London says, never had Buck seen such dogs seems as though their bones would burst through their skins, So maybe there was some kind of symbolism there about how the Whites kind of decimated the way of life for the natives. That might be reading too much into it. I don't know. But it's kind of fun to talk about. It's especially important in the interests of history. In juxtaposition with the history in which they were written. So apparently all the yee-hat talk is purged from the movie... That Harrison Ford is in. There's no ye starving dogs, no ye people, definitely no wild buck, apparently, periodically returning to wreak revenge on hunters found with their throats slashed cruelly open. There was lots of throat slashing in this. That was another grisly thing I had to find sound effects for was people gagging and throat slashing sound effects. But sadly enough, there's a plethora of royalty-free, copyright-free sound effects just That effect. The article goes on to say that the movie actually shows dogs working really well together when they're running in a dog sled, and apparently, they take you on cool rides along with that. So, there's plenty of things to see with the movie. I think it is important to understand the differences between what London was trying to say and what Disney is using. Now that that's actually uh, in the public domain too, they didn't have to pay royalties to anybody for this story. They just hired a writer to to write a draft of it and see how it goes and hire CGI people to create fake dogs. <laughs> this would be a hard movie to make with real dogs for sure. And there is lots of throat slashing. I mean, it's a very grisly tale and it's very hardcore. So, To that end, I'm going to kind of wrap this up suffice it to say when buck does go off when he is finally called completely by the wild it's due to his love of man being able to love one particular man that let him know that he could be free to go off into the woods he loved the ultimate proto man harrison ford who wouldn't want to be harrison ford's dog (laughs) sitting by harrison ford's fire um, you know, then you, you could have a worse life. And as far as dogs go, I'm sure Harrison Ford's pretty cool. He flies a helicopter and stuff. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. London did have a certain way with words, and he had beautiful descriptions on what it's like to be a sled dog, for example. He said, There's an ecstasy that marks the summit of life, and beyond which life cannot rise when he's talking about the dogs chasing the rabbit he says there's such a paradox of living that this ecstasy comes when one is most alive and it comes as a complete forgetfulness that one is alive and they just mean that you're living in the moment as opposed to sitting there thinking about it and it's true you're running wild you're living for that moment. So it says the scenes in the movie where Buck and his team under Perot's direction run well. And they say that they got it. So that, that would be good. Go see the movie if you like. If you like Harrison Ford or if you like uh, cartoon dogs, <laughs> sure, it'll be just fine. I'll probably wait for it to finally get to Netflix. That's it for now. Thank you for listening to me through Call of the Wild. It's been a lot of fun putting these things together. A lot more sound effects than I thought I would actually be using, but I hope you actually enjoy that kind of verite, cinema verite. I hope you enjoy it. I've always enjoyed playing around with sound effects and putting that kind of stuff together, and to me, that's the way books should be. This has been the wrap-up for Jack London's Call of the Wild. Join us next time on Public Domain Playhouse when we bring you another classic... From the Works of Antiquity. From our shelves. Our collective shelves. We'll see you on the next page. Get out there and do it. Thanks again for listening to Public Domain Playhouse. I know one that I'd like to read next. um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And actually, my wife sent me a list of um, stories that she wanted me to read. Was that in an email or a text? Let me go see if I have it in an email. Um